Let me ask you something today. What makes something good? What makes something good? I was uh, a couple of weeks ago, went to the Tate Modern. You been there? Yeah. It's got a fantastic coffee shop. Overlooks the River Thames. Brilliant. We're in the Tate Modern. I went there with my wife, Inika. And you, I don't know about you, but like some, some of the Tate Modern, you just sort of look at these things and you just go, What? And then, then, like, if you're like me, you kind of go up and you, and you look at the... T- see if it's got any kind of explanation as to what it is. And nearly they're all in... They've all got their little, little piece of card there. And they've all got untitled written on it. It's like the guy that... Or the, the woman that made it, like, just looked at it and went, like, this is going to sell. But I have no idea what it is. So we'll call it untitled... And we'll just sort of shove it in, and the, and, and the government, I don't know who buys the stuff that goes in the Tate Modern, but it goes there. And yet you kind of walk past, I walk past this one thing, which was, I can't even really describe it. It was, it was black, and uh, had these metal bits sticking out of it. And it just like, some reason, I kind of like stopped. And Inika wandered on, and she said like, come on, come on. And I'm like, no, this is good. This, this is good. And she's looking, it's black. What's good about it? I, I don't know, but it's good. And I'm just staring at this thing. It's just like, it's, it's in the corner, and there's just sort of black, I don't know, mirrors, and metal black bits sticking out of iron. But it was good, trust me. It was really good. And Enika went like, no, nah, that's not good. Like, that's just, let's just go. Let's go and have another coffee. You know, you, you've obviously been on your feet too long. But I'm going, no. And for me... For me, that was good. That was good art. Whereas, you know, for other people, they were just walking right on by it. And I'm just like, stop, stop, this is good. Look. But they couldn't see it. So what makes things good? Like, you go into a restaurant. You sit down, you know? And, and you're there and you think, I'll have steak. Because I love having steak. And I think, I know, what makes a good steak well, I, I don't know, really. There, there's some that, some that are really chewy and are kind of rubber and, you know, that's not good. But, but what makes one steak better than another steak? Or one pizza better than another pizza? Or one meal better than another meal? Well, it's kind of individual, isn't it? It's our own tastes and likes. Why do you like one painting more than another? Why do, you, why do you like one tie better than another tie? And you think, today I'm going to wear that tie. Or this shirt, or this outfit. It's partly because of private tastes. But then there's other things that, where our nation says certain things are good, and other things are not good. Today is Mothering Sunday. I came across a website that said this, How to be a good mother... In nine easy steps. You ready for this? You might want to take a few notes here, right? Number one. This is step one. How to be a great mother. Be supportive and never laugh at your children's hobbies, interests and friends. I don't know if the person that wrote this has ever seen some of my children's friends. But anyway. Number two. Be patient. Number three, take an interest in your child's interests. Number four, don't be tight with money. 
At that point, I thought, this probably has been written by children <laughs> rather than by adults. Number five, make sure that you're an approachable person to talk to. Number six, be able to admit that something you did may have been wrong and don't be afraid to apologize. Number seven, respect your child's love for another parent or another family member. Don't become jealous. Number eight, love your children more than anything else. Number nine, make your child feel special. Now, they're not bad, are they? I have to admit, it's not a bad list. The thing I really question about that is that one word in the title, easy. How many of those are easy steps? When your child brings home a friend that you don't think it's... Are you going to be supportive and never laugh? How easy is it for us to be patient with our children? or with one another, or even with ourselves? How easy is it for us not to be tight with money? Don't answer that. Should have done this before the offering, shouldn't we, really? But anyway. How easy is it for us to admit sometimes that we're wrong, and apologise, especially to our children? How easy is it for us to love our children more than anything else? Or to love them and give them the freedom to love others when we want their love all to ourselves. These are not nine easy steps to being a good mother or a good parent. What makes something good? Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We've been looking at the I am sayings of Jesus. And today... Jesus calls himself good. Somebody came to him and said, good teacher. And he said, who's good? Only God is good. But here, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What makes him able to say that he's good? Let's have a look together. John 10, verse 11. Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would speak to us once more. Lord, we can read these pages of scripture, but they stay just words on a page, unless your spirit plants them in our lives. You know what you want to say to each one of us. You know what you want to teach us and share with us today, so speak to each one of us today, we pray, through your spirit. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing Jesus says here, I am the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The first thing we see here Jesus saying is the reason, the first reason he says he's good is because he is willing, unlike everybody else, to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself, to risk himself for the sheep. He puts the needs of those sheep above his own welfare in front of himself. 
Now the people that would have heard this when Jesus was speaking to them would immediately have thought in the Old Testament, as I'm sure you have today, of Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 is a whole chapter about shepherds and sheep. And it starts off like this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not care for the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. But then it carries on at the end, verse 23 in that same chapter. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forests in safety. I will bless them and the places and the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. And so when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, they would immediately have thought of Ezekiel 34. And they would have looked too at the own shepherds, the own spiritual leaders of their nation. Jesus is saying, you know what? Compare me to them. Compare them, me to the shepherds that you've had in your history and the shepherds that you've got today. I am willing to lay down my life for you. What about them? What are they going to do? How are they going to show you just how far they will go? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Why? Because I serve the sheep. I look after them, I nurture them, I care for them, I will defend them. I will put myself in harm's way rather than allow them to be hurt. I heard about a couple that went, two friends went for dinner in a restaurant. Each requested a fillet of soul. And after a few moments, the waiter came back with their order. And it was one of those fancy restaurants where they bring it, they don't bring it all laden out on your own plate. They bring it out and you know you've got the vegetables in little dishes. And the dish, they brought out a big platter in the middle with two fish on it, two fillet of sole. Except one was larger than the other. And so one guy looked at the other guy. He said, let me serve you. And he placed the smaller fillet of sole on his plate and took the larger one for himself. And the other guy goes, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute here. Look what you've done. You've given me the little piece and you've taken the big one all for yourself. And the man said, well, how would you have done it? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, if I was serving, I would have given you the big piece and I'd have taken the little one for myself. And he said, that's what's happened, isn't it? Jesus, you have to think about that for a minute, don't you? 
But Jesus is not like that. Jesus said, I will give and give and give. Remember what he said in Gethsemane? Not my will be done but yours. I don't want to go through the sacrifice. I don't want to go through the cross. I'm struggling, Father, in my, in my humanness. Yet not my will but yours be done. That's why he can call himself the good shepherd. Because he's willing to go as far as it needs to go to look after, to care for those sheep. You know, it says it over and over again in the scriptures in 1 John 3. Let me read it. 1 John 3, verse 16. How can we tell what the love of God is? Hang on, let me find it first. One John three. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But then it goes on, verse sixteen. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions. And in truth. James said the same thing, just a a book, a couple of books before. James chapter 2. He said, In the same way, verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. He said, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one good God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder, you foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Carries on, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Jesus can say, I am the good shepherd. Why? Because in his life he demonstrated that by laying it down for you and for me, for his flock. He said, I'm not just going to talk about it, I'm going to actually do it. It's about that integrity. That what we say and what we do marry up together. There are so many examples of people without integrity around us. They say one thing, they do something else. I heard Stuart Briscoe, he's a pastor. He was, before he went and became a pastor, he was hired by a bank. When he was young, he was new there. His boss came to him one day and said, I'm expecting a phone call from such and such. Tell him I'm out. And Briscoe didn't know what to do. He said, I, you what? Are you going out then? He said, no, I'm not going out. I just don't want to talk to him, so tell him I'm out when he phones. And so Stuart Briscoe said, well, do you want me to lie for you? And the boss started to get really angry. And then Stuart said, I prayed and asked God for wisdom in that moment. And when his boss was getting angry, he said this. He said, you should be happy. 
Because if I won't lie for you, isn't it safe to assume that I won't lie to you either? That's integrity. That's saying, I live by what I say. The, what, I, what I believe in, what I am, is how I live my life. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd because he was willing to do that. To go through Gethsemane, however hard it was, to protect the sheep, to protect you and I. To say, I will go to wherever I need to go to, I will do whatever I need to do. To restore that relationship and to look after the sheep that you've given to me, Father. The first thing Jesus says, the reason is the good shepherd. He's not going to run away. He's not going to scatter. He's not going to go hiding. But he's going to stay the course. He's willing to risk it all, even his own life. But there's more. Look at verse 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, he says again. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The second reason why Jesus is the good shepherd is because he's willing to be known and to to know as well. You know, it's really scary to be really known by someone, isn't it? When you open yourself up to someone, you give them the power to really hurt you. Badly. But also to really love you too. And you can't have one without the other. We wish somebody could really, really love us, but actually we protect the bits of us that we feel are so vulnerable. Don't we? We'd love it if that was the case, but you can't do that. When you get into a relationship with someone, you, you, op- you gradually, as the trust builds, you open yourself up more and more and more to them. And you know that while you're doing that, the trust is building, but also the risk is building too. They have things about you. They know things. They know exactly how they can hurt you. Children know it best of all. The more you, you, you invest in a child the more they, you know that they, they know just where to push the buttons. They know exactly what to say, don't they? They know exactly how to just to twist the knife inside of you, saying, Stur! you know? Not that my children ever did that, if you're listening later, you know. But they know. Why? Because you've invested, you've opened yourself up to them, and by doing that, you become vulnerable. It's one of the hardest things for me when God called me into pastoral ministry. You have a choice when you become a pastor. I could just walk in here, have a preset sermon, deliver it on a full manuscript, walk out, keep everybody at arm's length. My home is my home. You don't go there. That's my private space. You guys, I'll come in, I'll do the business, I'll walk out again. And some pastors do that. You never get to really know who they are. There's a massive distance between you and the pastor of the church. They all dress up in their finery. They look like, you know, whatever. And they walk in, do the thing, walk out again. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a mindset that says that when you go through college and you go through training, they say, make sure you don't get too close. You don't want to get too close to the congregation that you're serving. 
But then it seems to me that's not the way that Jesus modelled. That's not the way that we are to be together. And so, honestly, I really struggled. I said, do I really ever really going to open myself up and make myself that vulnerable to people? What happens when they hurt me? Because they will. What happens when I open myself up and I say these things and I give them opportunity to come back at me and really stick the knife in? What am I going to do? Do I run and protect myself or do I allow myself to be open? And I had this terrible struggle within me because I knew that if I became a pastor... The only way I knew how to do it would be to be open with people around me. And then you take the hits and the knocks, but you also have the love and the support. And you get to be truly in people's lives, journeying with them, instead of distant from them. I heard about a university, actually the University of Northern Iowa in the United States, There was a general art course, and on the first day of the general art course, the professor came in with this big bag, and he called all his students forward, and he said, I want you to take one object out of this bag, and the bag was full of lemons. He said, take a lemon, take it home. I want you to have that lemon on you at every moment over the next week. You are to sleep with that lemon... You are to eat with that lemon. You do not go anywhere without that lemon. When you go in the shower, you take the lemon with you. That lemon is to be with you 24-7 over the next week. And so they did. Okay, this is a bit unusual. The next lecture, the following week, came back in. He said, I want you to come forward, bring your lemons. So they did. He opened the bag. They dropped all the lemons in. He closed the bag up, he shook it up a bit and then he picked out all the lemons and put them on the front of the desk and he said, now come and find your lemon. Mm -hmm. Virtually every single student found the lemon that they had that week. Why? Because they'd been with it, they'd showered with it, they'd eaten with it, they'd gone to the toilet with it, they'd taken it to college, they'd slept with it. They knew their lemon. It was different from all the other lemons. And because they had been that close to it, they could pick it out in a whole crowd of lemons. That is the intimacy with which Christ is calling us to be like his family. He says we need to know one another and be known just as he knows us. How does he describe it? He said, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, how well does God the Father know God the Son? Perfect. They're in perfect harmony. And so Christ calls us to that kind of level of relationship. And that, my friends, is scary. But that's what makes him the good shepherd. He said, you know what? I'm going to let you get to know me that well. And I want to know you that well too. Open your lives to me. And let me come in to every part of your life. Third thing he says. Look down in verse 16. 
I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Heard about a rich man who was determined to give his mother the mothering day present of, of all of them, to outshine every other. And so he searched everywhere to find the best present that he could give his mother on Mothering Sunday. And finally, he found this wonderful, wonderful bird. This bird, it's a parrot, could speak over 4,000 words. It could sing three different arias. This is some kind of special bird. And he bartered for it and eventually he managed to buy it for £100,000. He sent it off to his mother. Got it delivered by courier to his mother. And then he phoned his mum up on Mothering Sunday and said, Mum, how did you like the bird? She said it was delicious. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know how to carry on now. <laughs> the thing is, you've got to know the purpose of something to be able to know the value of it. Somebody, I've told you before, I was in, in a college course when I was going through theological training. It was the head of World Vision in Canada and he asked each one of us, he said, what's your purpose? What's your purpose in ministry? I'm going to be a missionary, I'm going to be a pastor. I said, the purpose, my purpose in ministry is to be in a church that is so connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. The people will just walk by and wonder what's going on in there and come in. Do you know what he said to me? He said, it will never happen. He said, it won't happen. And I said to him, if I believed you, I would not be sitting here. That's what God is doing here at Trinity. That's why we work. That's why we join together. That's what we're striving for. That's what my purpose is in being here. In those moments where I feel like just finding some beautiful island in the Pacific and just going off there and saying, Lord, give me a beach ministry here. That would be perfect. Thank you very much. In those moments, I think back to that moment with that lecturer. And I just say, you know what? It's not quite happened yet. Let me keep on going until I see it. till we experience it. Until that purpose becomes a reality. That's what drives me. That's what keeps me going. What about you? Why has God placed you where you are? Why has God placed you in your places of work? In your families? In this church? You need to have an answer to that because if you don't, if you just kind of drift through life, it's kind of like, it's like Alice in Wonderland. She went and she met the Cheshire cat. And she said to the Cheshire cat, she said, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the Cheshire cat said, well it kind of depends where you want to get to. And she said, I don't mind very much. And the cat said, well, it doesn't matter which way you go then. 
And a lot of believers are kind of like that. They have no reason, no purpose. And it's like you ask them, why, why has God placed you here? I don't know. What is God wanting you? I don't know. What gifts and ability has God given to you to use it? I don't know. What are, what are you doing? Nothing. Why? Because you don't know anything. God has given you, planted you, placed you in the flock. He's given you a purpose and a reason. He's given you gifts and abilities that He wants to use in a particular way at this particular time. We need to understand what it is He's asking us to do. Be clear about our purpose. Jesus had such a clear purpose. Why did He go where He went? Why did He talk to the people He talked to? Because He said, there is a flock that must be gathered in and God has chosen me to be the one to gather them in. I must. Not that it's optional. It's like when your mum or your dad used to say, David, go tidy your room. That wasn't an optional statement. I, I used to think of it like that. I used to say, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But, but I'm, I've got, I'm just finishing watching this program, then I'll get right to it. Do you think my mother used to say, she, she didn't know the nine, you know, the nine easy steps, right? Do you think she used to say, oh, well, that's fine then. You just carry on watching this movie. And when it's finished and you feel like it, I'll be really grateful if you go and tidy your room. No, she did not say that. She used to say to me, I beg your pardon. I had just said tidy your room. That means now tidy your room. And off I went to tidy my room. David, do your homework. Oh yeah, but I've got a lot of better offers. Thanks very much. Nice idea. But that's going to happen later. No, that didn't happen later. You go to your room right now. You sit down and you do your homework. And in the same way, Jesus said, I must. It's not an option. I've been sent here to bring this flock together. To bring all the people I need to bring in to the kingdom of God. And he's asked us to do the same. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 28, as you're doing that, go and make disciples of all nations. We looked at that a little while ago. That's our mandate, what we have to go and do. It's not an option if we're a believer of Jesus Christ. He's given us that mission, that purpose. And how do we do it? Well, one of the key things, look at the bottom of verse 16, the fourth thing. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. Unity is so key. If we are disunited, growth will stop overnight. Growth doesn't happen where there is disunity. I learned that lesson really early on when I was in Uganda. We were on that team in Uganda. There was two from the UK, two from Canada, two from the United States. And we had uh, national partners and we are all together living, breathing together on a, on a compound, working together in northern Uganda. When I was there, I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm here for a year love to see a hundred people come to know Jesus Christ in a year. And so I was praying for it. Lord, a hundred people, a hundred people. After two months, we had, there was over a hundred people that had come to know Jesus Christ. It was amazing just seeing the Lord, just blessing the ministry and everything else. Then we started getting attacked from the enemy from outside. 
The local witch doctor was not happy, for starters, taking business away, started attacking us, and it drew our group closer and closer together. And we were praying, and we were fellowshipping together, and we were ministering together. The numbers kept pouring into the kingdom of God. Then the enemy got on the inside, and the team started to fall out with one another. I don't like the way you brush your teeth in the morning. I don't like the way you do this. I don't like this. And overnight, just like that, no new believers came. Nothing. We were doing exactly the same things. We were out working in the villages, preaching the good news, doing exactly the same as we've been doing weeks before. But no results. And it wasn't until maybe six months later when we finally sorted out the tensions between us as a team that we started to see people coming to know Jesus again. That's what happens when there is disunity. Unity is key. That's why Jesus said there will be one shepherd, one flock. Why do you think the enemy works so hard to rip churches apart? Because when they're ripping themselves to pieces, when they're arguing over carpet colours, and whether you have curtains shut or open or whatever it might be, then you will know there will be no blessing. There will be no power of God working in that place. Because they'll be focused on one another and not focused on Him. He said there is one shepherd. If we keep looking to the shepherd, we will automatically have unity. If we keep on focusing on him as our conductor, then the whole orchestra plays well together. But if, the, if we start looking at one another and, and comparing ourselves and listening to one another instead of listening to him, we're on a road that leads to disaster. It's why God so often, why the Bible so often talks about unity. And how key unity is. And Jesus says it here too. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. And we need to work together to hear what the shepherd is saying to us. And to follow his voice in unity together. And lastly, look at the last few verses. Verse 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Now the last thing that Jesus says here is that he's obedient to his father. He is doing what his father has told him to do. This command I received from my father. Our authority comes when we are both connected to our Father and obedient to our Father. When we have both the connection in relationship and the obedience that we're doing what He asks us to do, then we will automatically be channels of God's love and channels of the Holy Spirit's power through us. You ever been in a prayer meeting where God has laid on your heart something to pray, but you've not wanted to say it? Have you ever been there? You've been there and, and they think, oh, I should be praying for this. And you're there wrestling, going, oh, yeah, but I don't know the words. How am I going to work? Like, they're praying really nicely over there at the moment. But, uh, uh, Lord, I don't know if I'm really... Like, and then, while you're struggling with it, somebody else then prays exactly the same thing that you were going to pray. You ever been there? I've been there. 
I was sitting in the chapel just the other week. I was thinking of the verse of scripture and I, I didn't have my own Bible on me and I was trying to find it. I can find everything in this Bible. But in any other Bible, I'm like, oh, where is it? It's somewhere around there. And I'm like looking and I knew where it was because it was at the top of that page and I would have just found it in my own. But I was looking and I was saying, oh, that, that would just have been relevant. I need, where's this verse from? I can't just say the verse without knowing where it's from because they'll say, where's that from? I don't know. Like, you can't because you're the pastor. You're supposed to know all these things. So it's like, um, you know, and then Luke, he says the very verse and quotes it that I was thinking of. I'm like going, Dah, just, you know. But it's like that. It's about a being in obedience. It's about doing the thing that God asks you to do. Thomas Akempis put it like this. He said, instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Parents know all about that. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Tidy your room. Yeah, later. Yeah, right. Whoever strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from grace. If we don't obey what God wants us to do, we're pulling ourselves, our relationship, we're pulling it away from God. And God says, just as Jesus was obedient, so we need to be obedient too. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? Because he was willing to sacrifice himself, to risk himself. Because he was willing to be open in intimacy with his flock. Because he was single-minded in his purpose in the mission that God has sent him. Because he sought unity as a grounds, as a, as a, a breeding ground for, for growth and development and nurture. And because he was obedient to his heavenly Father. And as we look at those five characteristics, it seems to me that those are the key things that make for good mothers and good fathers, good brothers and good sisters, that actually make for good believers too. Christ calls us to lay ourselves down, to sacrifice ourselves, to risk ourselves for him when he asks us to. He calls us to intimacy with one another, to be open, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2. You can't do that unless you're willing to share and be open with one another. He calls us to be single-minded in our purpose. Go make disciples, go show the love of Jesus Christ. He calls us to be one just as he and the Father are one. And he calls us into a life of obedience. Take up your cross every day and follow. There may be nine easy steps to being a wonderful mother. Don't believe it. But Christ here gives us five challenges. Five challenging opportunities to being good believers, good followers of him. But he doesn't just lay those out there. He's shown us how to do it by doing it himself first. So that he could say, I am the good shepherd. Because I'm willing to show you and demonstrate it in my whole life. Not only that, he's given us one another. That as we journey down this road, as we allow 
as we, as we strive to be better at each one of these things, we can encourage one another. We'll never arrive. We'll never be perfect in our sacrifice and our risk or our intimacy or our purpose or our unity or our obedience. But we're here to encourage one another in that journey. And most of all, we have God's Spirit. The Spirit that dwells in us, continually works and transforms us from the inside out, gives us the power to be able to do these things that Christ has asked us to do. God is the Good Shepherd. Jesus is, and we are the sheep. But he calls us today to follow him and his example so that we might be good shepherds of one another. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that you are the example for us to follow. Lord, that you are the power by which we can accomplish what it is you want us to do because we can't do it in our own strength. There are no five easy steps to take. These are huge challenges for us. But with your help, with the Spirit of God working in us, they might not just be challenges, mountains to climb, they can be victories that are won. Lord, you can help us to be more open and intimate with one another. You can help us to be more able to risk ourselves in service of you. You can help us to be more obedient to who you are. You can help us, Lord, to be more united together. Not that we all have the same mind. Not that we all see things exactly the same way, but that we are united in spirit, in heart, as one people. With all our differences working together. Because we are united in the purpose of bringing your kingdom in word and in deed. Lord, we thank you. Where we struggle, help us. Where we succeed, help us to encourage others. And Lord, above all, take us and use us. Work in us and through us to accomplish your purposes as we seek to support and encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you and we praise you that you are the wonderful great shepherd. In the name of Christ. Amen.